Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Benjamin R. Lewick Leadership Podcast, where we believe everyone deserves exceptional leadership. Benjamin brings more than 25 years of leadership and team development experience to the table as he sits down to chat with other seasoned industry leaders and talk through real workplace issues. In each episode, Benjamin identifies action steps that you can start using right away as a leader to address the things that affect personnel, productivity, and profitability. Join us in today's episode as we explore practical and tactical ways that you can create a workplace environment that increases revenue, productivity, and motivation while decreasing stress and personnel churn. Are you ready? Exceptional leadership starts in three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Benjamin, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Before we dive into the conversation with my guest today, I want to remind you to be sure and stick around to the end of the episode. I'll be doing a quick recap of the key takeaways from today's conversation for you and wrapping up everything with a concise summary. I'm really excited about the content we're sharing with you today, so let's get this conversation started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of the podcast. I've got an amazing guest for you here today. It is Ray Campion. He has 30 years of experience in regulated industry, delivering projects and developing and leading high-performing teams. He's an executive coach and leadership mentor. He's on the member of the Board of Trustees for South Kent Mind and is dedicated to promoting well-being in the workplace. He is a learning transactional analyst in the organizational field, studying in his advanced year at TA Works in Oxford, England, and is a member of the Institute of Leadership and Management. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. So great to have you on today. Thank you, Benjamin. Great to be here. Thank you so much. You have an amazing background. Just reading some of the uh, the credentials and things, the experience that you've uh, that you've provided for us in your bio. I imagine you have some pretty incredible stories of things that that you've seen and and people that you've worked with. Would you care to to dive into any of that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, where where I am today is is I am a product of my uh, mistakes and my learning on the job. I mean, when I, I've been, in, as you said, I've been in in regulated industry, and by by that I mean uh, specifically in the construction industry in the UK and largely around large rail infrastructure projects. So heavily regulated, big schemes, uh, lots going on, technically challenging. And when I first embarked into my first kind of leadership position as a project manager. I think I pretty much tick the box of every rookie mistake that we can make. I'm, I'm determined working with people now that I am able to support them so that they can benefit from my mistakes and my learning so that hopefully they'll have a, a better advantage as they step into their career. I resonate with that so much. Um, I launched my my first team uh, 25 years ago, a little over 25 years ago, and uh, I'm, I'm with you on that same boat of the majority of the things that I learned, I learned the hard way by making mistakes and realizing, oh, that's probably not the way I should do that. Let me figure out a way that's actually works and is actually beneficial for people. Mm. And you know, the crazy thing about it, Benjamin, is that when I when I stepped into my first formal recognized leadership position, you know, I'd been a member of many, many teams. So I I knew what good felt like and I knew, knew what good worked for me. And immediately that I stepped into that new role, I kind of forgot all that for a couple of years and thought, oh, right, I've got to adapt this leadership position now. So, you know, I need to do this and I need to do that and I need to be this and that. And actually what I needed to do was sit back for a second and take an appraisal of the situation and realize that I didn't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I already knew what good looked and felt like. I just needed to understand how I could facilitate that from a leadership position rather than facilitating it from a participant position. Yeah, I, I completely, completely understand that. Um, one of the things that I've talked about with leaders before is, is that a lot of times especially for new, younger leaders and things like this. And this was my experience as well as a lot of other people I've talked to is when you get put into a supervisory role or you get put into a management role or something like this, there's pressure to perform and to accomplish goals and organizational objectives and things like this. And a lot of times we revert to what I've kind of referred to as the industrial revolution status quo the way of thinking about leadership and leading teams and developing teams coming out of you know the industrial revolution where they created this this system this machine designed to exploit the people in the pursuit of the revenue and the profits and the processes and the productivity so that the organization could be better off at the expense mm -hmm. of the people who made it possible you know so i think a mm -hmm. lot of people who don't have 
that perspective that don't have that that experience yet they're like okay well let me look around and see what everybody else is doing and i'm just going to kind of mimic them mm. but you know benjamin i actually sit here sometimes and i think i'm glad in my formative leadership years that we didn't have social media because sometimes i look at social media and, and things like linkedin and like you could get very easily overwhelmed by all this stuff coming at you telling you what you should be doing and you should be like this and you should be like that and leadership is this and leadership is that that i i sense that it could be very easy to get overwhelmed or sucked into that and actually the most important thing is to first understand who you are and that for me was the single biggest piece of learning i did i actually took some time to learn who i was and then i could interpret all of the things that were going on around me because i understood how it what effect it was having on me and i could interpret that language to go okay i'm feeling this so maybe this is going on and that opened up a whole new world to me in terms of working with people leading teams how to strategically set teams up and and set strategic objectives and get people in the boat and rowing in the same direction is so so fascinating that you should mention it that way talking about this information overload that we get bombarded with every single day from social media and the internet and just all these different digital sources people are drowning in information and you're talking about looking inward and really the to turn a phrase know thyself yes what did that that kind of that paradigm evolution look like for you starting off you know as a young leader to where you've come to now you know a few decades later how did you affect that process of self-realization and, and kind of self-awareness to mature as a leader? I, I'll take a step back and, and, and explain my original approach. So just to add a bit of context, I am the youngest of five children and all of my siblings were significantly older than me. My next nearest sibling is seven years older than me. So I had learned from a very early age to read a room and try to manipulate and control the situation as best I could. <laughs> so it's no wonder I went into project management, right? I I was, I was destined. Um, and when I, when I first be, took a, 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 like a, a recognized leadership position, my immediate thought was, right, okay, so how do I influence people to be able to get them to do what I need them to do? And I thought this was the way, and I bought all sorts of books on influencing people and all these sorts of things. And I drove myself crazy because I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't, but I didn't know that. I didn't have language for that at the time. I just thought this really isn't working for me. And somebody suggested to me that I should maybe take a little time just to understand who I am and what what's going on inside me so that I can then interpret the impact that things are having. And a, and a tangible example is one of the things I, I would have manifested as a behavior in the early days was that I would have been in very uncomfortable if I was having a conversation with a member of my team and they were sharing something personal with me. I mean, I, I would rather like literally the ground open up and swallow me than, than sit <laughs> here and listen to this person. But actually the, the, the paradigm shift was going and seeking a little bit of knowledge about myself and understanding what some of my intrapsychic uh, triggers and behaviors and script we talk in transactional analysis about script a lot to understand what was going on inside for me because then i could understand right okay i'm sitting with this person i'm feeling this thing this discomfort or whatever it might be what and be curious i learned to be curious about it is that my thing or is it their thing and what i started to learn was a little bit of confidence to actually start listening to people phenomenologically and what i mean by that is that some people call it active listening i was listening to people intuitively so i was taking on board what was what was i feeling in my body and what significance did that have in the moment now this is very easy to say this took quite a lot of learning and i'm still perfecting that skill what it allowed me to do is immediately recognize some of the anxieties that were being created in myself appreciate them and being able to then rationalize them to think do you know what is this really appropriate in the moment this person is just sharing that you know they're having some difficulty with their dog it's not well at the moment it's going to the vet they might need a little bit of slack in terms of clocking in and clocking out times you know they're having this conversation with me i don't need to feel scared by this conversation i can listen to this person sit with this person empathize with them and we can work something out that's going to work for both of us rather than me sitting there 
scared rabbit in the headlights because this person is sharing personal information with me and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm reverting to my fear state, which is, you know, I just need to get this person to work harder kind of thing. So it was it wasn't one moment in time. It started with me becoming quite curious about myself and seeking going to see a therapist uh, and some coaches to understand a little bit about myself. And then once I started to put some names to some of that stuff that was going on for me, I then naturally became incredibly curious about other people. And that just opened up a world to me that all of a sudden colleagues weren't just colleagues. They were actually people with all that they bring. And I really started to appreciate how as a leader and, and working in teams, you need to be able to embrace the whole of the person. Man, I, I agree with you. And I, I resonate with that so much. Uh, I was recently talking to another leader here recently. And I, was, I was talking to him and and, and made the, the observation that great leadership is intrusive by nature. One of the things we have to understand is, is that regardless of what industry or business that we're in, whether it's business to business or business to consumer or direct to consumer, however it's structured from an organizational perspective, at the end of the day, it's always interactions between humans, mm. humans that have fears, humans that have desires and passions and excitements and motivators and demotivators. I recently defined a toxic environment as an environment in which they try to remove or limit someone's humanity under the auspices of it being for the greater good of the organization. Yeah. So yeah. really what you're talking about here about really understanding not just yourself as a leader, but allowing that to relate to the humanity and to connect with real people is really part of that evolution that's taken you to this, this, this more mature, more engaged leadership paradigm. Yeah, because let's face it, like the psychologically, people are not working for us or with us for us. They're doing it for them. Whatever their motivation might be, maybe we share a common cause. Maybe they just in the in that particular time in their life, their motivation is money. Maybe their motivation is the hours. Maybe their motivation is the actual challenge of the work itself. But actually, they're, they're always going to be there for themselves. And so you can't ignore that. You have to be able to tap into that. And it's the difference between looking upon people as resources and looking on them as a, a big bag of free will and trying to inspire the free will rather than trying to squeeze a finite resource. Because, you know, people, when people are doing things from free will and doing it for themselves, they will go to all sorts of extraordinary lengths to achieve. When they're doing it and they're just a resource and a finite resource, they have a limitation and there's only so much you can get out of them. And then having to lead them and indeed manage them becomes much more, as you alluded to earlier, it's much more of an industrial mechanized process. I don't know if, have you ever heard of a guy called Sir Ken Robinson? I am not familiar with Sir Ken okay. Robinson. Okay, Sir Ken Robinson, he has three famous TED Talks that are available on YouTube. Now, he was talking particularly about education and how his idea that education stifles creativity. But actually, you can extrapolate that into the business world as well. What he talked about is we need to have moved from the industrial style, command and control style of business leadership to a more, as he described it, an agricultural uh, style. So a farmer, their sole purpose is to create the conditions for life, for life to flourish, whether it's making sure the soil's right, making sure there's adequate water or not too much water, looking far ahead to make sure that, you know, the soil is sustained so that crops get rotated, looking at, you know, what the weather's coming up and all this. So strategic thinking and creating an environment. That's what they have to do. The growth bit will happen if you create the right environment will happen organically. And, and so when he talked about that in terms of education, I very much took that into all also the organizational field. And I think it's very pertinent that, you know, more progressive leaders these days are talking much more about culture and environment. I completely agree with you in a lot of the stuff that I've been putting out here recently. And uh, I know we briefly touched on this uh, before we started recording the podcast when we were talking. Environment, for me, at least, I believe that it is the number one pre-indicator of long-term success and long-term viability of any team. Yes. The, every organism either thrives or dies in response to its environment. And as a leader, you are responsible for creating, maintaining, and preserving the ecosystem that your team exists within. Mm. 
Yeah. And, and as any farmer or horticulturalist or, or even amateur gardener knows, you, you need to nurture the soil. You can't just keep growing the same crop in the same soil and not nurture it. You need to, you know, you need to make sure that there's generations can thrive in this environment, not just the next quarter or the next financial year or the next profit and loss account or whatever it might be. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the parallels between the, the metaphors are so spot on when it comes to developing not just short-term teams that can, that can grind and, and they can push real hard for a fiscal quarter and then they're burnt out and you have a 30% personnel churn and half the people are having to go to therapists for behavioral health issues because they're just so burnt out. We're talking about creating something that's actually sustainable long-term and can be replicated mm. over and over for long-term yeah. sustainable success. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my my experience has been in uh, complex project delivery. So so in a project and the definition of a project is it's a change to the business as usual. But projects by their own nature are people doing tasks by a certain time or within a certain time scale. And in project management, learning and, and, and accreditation and everything, we spend a lot of time and we've got a lot of very, very clever tools and metrics for measuring task and time. But what we don't tend to have is how we measure people. One of the great leading indicators, shall we say, that there, there might be something significant is churn, turnover. Now, you can imagine churn in a business, in a standard business, is difficult enough to deal with and can be very disruptive and expensive. In a project team where you've got to form a disparate group of people into a, into a team, you've got to get them all in the boat, you've got to get them all rowing in the same direction, at the same pace, with the same tempo. If you then suddenly start having people drop out of that and new people dropping in, each time somebody turns over, you've basically got to reform the team psychologically. So actually, one of the biggest, and, and, and I've seen on many large scale projects, you know, we look at them in hindsight and we say, oh, it, it overran, it, you know, it was over budget, whatever, you know, it must have been technically complex. Yes, it was. But by and large, the things that go wrong in projects are related to people and they go wrong related to people because we're not leading the project teams in the most effective way. And so for me, I put a, I do a lot of work with project managers to support project managers to learn the things that formal project management training doesn't teach you. I work with project managers to help them more effectively work with human beings and create teams. And that's where my real professional focus is these days. That is such a such an a, a important niche to be in. I mean, as you were mentioning in your experience, I've seen that to be true for myself as well. Um, I spent 15 years in the construction industry down in Texas before I joined the army. And it was the same thing. When I was a uh, project supervisor, project superintendent, we would have we would have personnel churn, and mm. and the the cost overruns purely related to staffing complications was significant yeah. in in every project, and it was yep. largely related to the way that they wanted to run the projects. It was related to the environment that they wanted to try to get these things accomplished in, where they approach things. And I've heard I've heard well-meaning leaders say this, trying to placate their their personnel and things like this, like, oh, our, our people are our greatest asset, you know, trying to say that their people are important. It's like, no, you're still viewing them as a serialized component that you can then leverage for your own personal gain or for the gain of the organization. Yeah. You're, you're ignoring the fact that they are a person that needs to be connected with and motivated in a way that actually motivates them. I, I just wanted to, to say on that, Benjamin, I mean, it's it's like there are some amazing leaders out there. And, and I think actually we're quite fortunate because I think there's a generation of human beings coming forward that are, if we, if we give them the opportunity and create the right, the right environment, they will thrive as leaders and God knows we're going to need them to. But I do think that they're certainly in my industry and I've seen it and I'm, I'm part of this cohort. So, so the construction industry in the UK is, is largely dominated by middle-aged white men. And that in itself is, it creates a challenge because there's a lack of diversity and immediately you've got a lack of diversity, you've got a, a lack of perspectives. And so what is often happening is that there are, it's, you know, from, from carpentry, right? Yes. If you, if you use the same template for all your cuts, all your cuts will be the same. But if every cut you make, you then make that cut to be the template for the next cut, even the slightest deviation, ultimately over a thousand cuts, you're going to be way out. Okay. Right. So, so what we do is we, we train our leaders 
in, in our industry based on what came before. And so they are just a, a newer version of what was previously. So the evolution of the leadership is actually very slow. And what we really need, I feel, uh, certainly in construction, but I think also in, in other industries, is we need a bit of a radical step change. I'm not c- calling for revolution, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but we need to we need to stop the rhetoric now. The whole, you know, our people are our greatest asset and all these other nouns that are great to have on posters and marketing material and all that sort of stuff. We need to start walking the talk. I completely agree with you um, on that piece. 100%. So my question for you then is, is like, as you've identified this um, over the years, uh, that this is definitely something to be having a conversation about and and definitely an area where there's growth and, and some evolution and leadership needed. How do you see this playing out in terms of a viable solution? Or how have you been able to solve it with the companies that you've worked with? I mean, first of all, what I would say, and, and, and I refer to it as the consultant trap. Sometimes us consultants, we think that we can influence people by necessarily telling them that they need to change. And my experience is that with any sort of change on the human level, the the individual needs to want to change. So I think we've got to stop with some of the, you know, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you should be doing kind of narrative that exists out there in the ether. And actually, first of all, start by conversations and start by trying to demonstrate what good looks like. Because when you talk to leaders, most people with any sort of experience in the workplace, when you say to them, tell me about a time when you were part of a team and it was a really good team and you really wanted to be there. And no matter how difficult the job was, you were you were in it. Often when they reel off the things that they associate with that, there's a lot of commonality across people of what good looks and feels like. Right. But for some reason, we're not able to transfer that into suddenly when we're the people responsible for creating that. We we kind of I don't know whether it's that we ultimately lose a little bit of perspective or or, or pressure or whatever, but it's it feels like, well, actually, what happens is we generally don't prepare people to step into leadership. It's a bit, it's called the Peter principle. You know, the people start off as the guy who does the job. And then because he's good at, at doing the job, he gets made up to the guy who's supervising the guy doing the job. And then he gets up to the manager of the supervisor. And, and within that, quite often, there's no understanding of the step change psychologically that exists there and what needs to be done with that person to prepare them for that next stage up because there's a massive gap psychologically in being the guy who just comes in every day and does the thing to being the guy who manages the guy who supervises the guy who does the thing who has to think about these million and one other things think strategically figure out how his team or her team can work in line with the organization's goals so the first thing we need to do, I think, is work with leaders to try and dispel the myth of, you know, because you've assumed a position, therefore you are the position. So in transactional analysis, Eric Byrne, who founded it, talked about there being three elements of leadership in an organization. Now, ideally, these three elements would be held by the same person, but quite often they're not. And so you have at the the first position is you have the responsible leader. That is the person who on the organizational chart holds a leadership role. Okay. They have that. You then have positional authority. Yeah, absolutely. And often it's interesting in organizations as an aside to examine how leadership is is acquired and how leadership is taken away. The second position, leadership position is the effective leader. This is the person whose orders get followed. Okay. The third position is the psychological leader. This is the person who is looking out for the strategic aims of the team and is often the person who ultimately within the team gets followed. So they're not obeyed, they are followed. Now, as I say, ideally you would want those three people to be embodied in the same person, but quite often they're not. And if you have a a curious mind uh, or maybe an anthropological perspective on life, if you walk into an office, you can very quickly establish who the psychological leader is. Yeah, you will probably understand who the who the uh, rec- the recognized leader is because they'll be the one in the corner office. But the psychological leader is the person that really affects change in an organization. If they're not bought into it, they're not. They're it's not going to happen, or it's going to be very difficult. So I think the first 
first thing we got to do is start having conversations and start encouraging people, leaders, as part of their development. Stage one, learn a little bit about yourself. They say knowledge is power, Benjamin. Self-knowledge is empowering. Because once you know a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your proclivities, as we would say, the little quirks and things that you have, you can start to understand why you behave in particular scenarios. You can start to become aware of it. You can start to then take control of that and choose other behaviors or responses in a particular scenario. Once you learn a little bit about yourself, you will inevitably, because we are all intuitive beings, start to be curious about others and you'll start to understand a little bit about them. So that guy who always comes over to you moaning and quite aggressive and stuff, you'll start to be, instead of being, instead of reacting to their behavior, you'll start to be a little bit curious about why that is, what's really going on here. And then you might be feel empowered enough or confident enough to actually open a conversation about it. And that guy who maybe you thought, you know, they're not a team player, I need to get rid of them. All of a sudden, they become new to you. So to take it back to first principles, all of our leaders should be encouraged to do a little bit of personal work to understand themselves first before they work into a leadership position. And then a whole world will open up to them. And life will be all of the scars that I've got on my back. Hopefully future leaders won't have if they, if they adopt this perspective. That's such, such fascinating concepts. Um, As you were talking, something that, that came to me in my mind is talking about doing this, this work of, of understanding yourself and becoming, you know, empowered and self-aware and stuff like this to me really seems like point A, if we're talking, you know, GPS waypoints, if we're trying to go from point A to point B, point B being what we define as a good leader, point B being the person that we need to become to be not only empowered, but empowering of the people on our team, the people responsible for leading and serving, we then understand definitively what that gap is. And we understand, okay, this is who I currently am. This is the areas that I need to grow and develop in to become that person who can be the leader that the people around me need. Mm, absolutely. And I, I just on that, I'm, I'm immediately listening to you. I'm, I'm also minded to say that. So, so one of the pieces of work that we actually quite often accidentally fall into with clients. They'll come to us and they'll talk to us about wanting to establish some sort of a leadership development program. And one of the first questions we will ask is, what does leadership look like in your organization? Because one of the key things for an organization to understand is what what do we want leadership to be and this isn't a judgment call you know I, i'm not sitting across from the from them you know judging them for oh you know that's not my style of leadership or whatever doesn't matter what i think it's about what they want and what they need because if you're designing a leadership development program it needs to fit with the organization because if you're developing leaders in a style that pushes against what the organization's leadership culture is, then you're going to, there's going to be an awful lot of unconscious conflict going on. And actually, it can be counterproductive to people because <clears throat> they might develop as a leader and suddenly realize, I can't be a leader in this organization. Our, our values and beliefs, our, my identity is, is different to that of the organizations I need to leave. Now, the brave generative organizations say, do you know what? That's a price we're willing to take because we don't want to have people in our organization who don't feel that they belong here, but we'll work with them to find them somewhere where they will belong. And then we will recruit people on the basis of this is our leadership culture. So I think from an organizational level, again, it's a little bit like looking the individual looking intrapsychically. Spend a little bit of time trying to understand what's the leadership culture in this organization. And I will say that if you ask the C-suite guys, what's your leadership culture, they'll give you an answer. If you do a deep dive through the organization, you will get an entirely different answer. Yeah, that's absolutely true. One of the first things that I do whenever I work with leaders is we go through this process where um, a lot of times we use utilize anonymous surveys and things like this so that people give us like a no BS 
real look at what people think and feel about the organization in multiple key categories and the disparity between what management or formal leadership thinks about what the organization believes and what they actually communicate when they feel like they can talk openly, there's often a very large gap there. And and that comes down to leaders not being connected to the people that they're leading, not having those communications, not having those connections and those relationships, not making space for people to be open and honest and candid for the greater good of the organization. Mm -hmm. And, and in fairness to, you know, to, to, to leadership teams and stuff, quite often what they're experiencing as the culture is actually the social level dynamics. So they will talk about how, you know, how our people talk to each other. You know, our people always greet each other and all that sort of thing. Culture is non-verbal. So you don't necessarily see it. It's like um, I use it sometimes. I use the scenario a, a number of years ago. I watched a program about some people in a nature reserve in Siberia were tracking Siberian tigers to check on their numbers and their health and re- reproductivity and all that sort of thing. And they, they were out in the snow in Siberia tracking these tigers for weeks. And occasionally, you know, they'd see a hint of where a tiger had walked through an area a couple of hours before. If they were lucky, they'd get a glimpse of maybe a flash of tail through the the trees or whatever. Sometimes looking about looking at culture is a bit like that. We we did an examination last year with TA Works uh, with an organization and we did a, an anthropological study of the culture. And we did that with a mixture of learning a little bit about the structures and the dynamics of the organization. But we also had a series of learning conversations with people right through the organization. And we noted key words that they and phrases that they made. Now, one of the important things was we tried to use their language. So, for example, if somebody was very used a lot of imagery, we, we would we would try to reciprocate with that language. And then we went through a process of distilling down into like three elements of culture. We fed that back in a presentation to the organization and everybody was saying, oh, you know, we, we don't we don't recognize these. You know, the, we, we haven't seen that. But actually, the data said something entirely different. And that's the importance of culture. It doesn't matter what people say, the rhetoric, the social level, it's what goes on underneath and in the shadows. And that's not all to suggest that, you know, everything you find is bad. There's often amazing stuff in there that you were completely unaware of that actually organizations can tap into as part of their wider strategic leadership development ideas. Because, you know, you 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 fundamentally, uh, an organization, the way we think about organizations is that they, they have um, not a personality per se, but they, they have, they have, well, yeah, in a way they have an identifiable personality and, and that, and, and we find that that can go, even though there's often cycles of people, you can trace this personality or back to the founder or back to the significant early leaders. And it's important to acknowledge that in an organization, because if you're embarking on a, on a program, you've got to spend a lot of money and invest a lot of time and energy into this. You want to make sure that it's congruent with who you are as an organization. If as part of that study, you decide that there's things about your culture that actually you don't like, then that's a different conversation. And there's absolutely things you can do about that. And it would pay you to attend to that first before you then spend all that money and time and effort into developing your leadership program, because you don't want to be doing that and trying to change your culture at the same time. And sometimes it's through leadership development programs that the organizations become aware that maybe there's something a little bit in congruent with their with their leadership culture and their leadership style. And by that time, they've invested an awful lot of money and it's very difficult to turn the ship. So often these conversations are best had in the contracting phase with a consultant to actually understand what does leadership mean for you? What does leadership look like in your organization? Are the two things congruent? And if they are, then we've got a roadmap that we can absolutely follow and develop your people into. Absolutely. I mean, it really kind of comes full circle back around to what you said earlier in our conversation conversation about people actually having to want to change to be able to lead change in an organization. 
it's not just that they want to change some organizational processes or they want to increase profits or reduce personnel churn or whatever, whatever KPIs or metrics that they're looking to affect change in. It's, well, that's all a reflection of the leadership and the culture that you've allowed to evolve and grow. So talking about having that candid conversation of what leadership looks like for them, how do they view this? How do they, what do they believe? What are the stories that they're telling themselves about these things is a very good pre-indicator of whether or not they are willing to change to accomplish the things that they say they want to accomplish. Yeah. And the, the, the reality is, so so if you would approach me 20 years ago and said, okay, Ray, just let's do a little bit of a reflection on your leadership experience now. And from that, what would you want to change? The things I probably would have chosen back then actually were would have been born out of my misunderstanding of the situation, my misreading of the room, because I wasn't emotionally mature enough at that stage to have an objective perspective. So I would have probably listed a number of things that probably would have been around myself, but actually in hindsight, I look back on that now and think that probably wouldn't have been a good idea to do that. And I'm glad I didn't. So I do, I keep coming back to the whole thing of, you know, self-knowledge is empowerment and it starts with us. If we understand ourselves, we then have an opportunity to understand others. If we have an opportunity to, uh, to understand others, we have an opportunity to connect with them on a level that actually works for both of us as human beings, not just as leader and subordinate or whatever it might be and taps into that free will rather than trying to see somebody as just a resource to be squeezed and listen i have to say in in ta our founder eric Byrne, had three philosophical principles first of all he believed that everyone is okay and what he meant by that is that as a human being you have intrinsic value okay yes absolutely this isn't a, a statement on your behavior because you can you can act quite despicably, but it doesn't mean that intrinsically as a human being, you do not have value. And this comes to when we use othering language that really works against the sense of okayness. The second philosophical principle was that everybody can think, right? Obviously, there are people who have certain brain injuries that their, their ability to think is, is a little bit um, inhibited, but but generally people can think. And the third fit principle is that everyone can change. Now, the word can is quite important because it doesn't say everybody will change or everybody should change. Right. It just puts it out there that everybody can. There's now, again, there. absolutely capacity. Now, in coaching, the key principle of our coaching philosophy is to support the coachee to appreciate their own capacity because the amount of people that come to us who maybe not in the first instance but within a very short period of time will start to exhibit what we would call limiting beliefs okay so these little labels injunctions we call them start popping out i can't or that's difficult or i wouldn't be able to you know little things like that and we're very much attuned to hearing that sort of thing and it's an opportunity to say to somebody okay i hear you saying that but let's examine that in the here and now let's understand where that message may be coming from and let's see if it's relevant in the here and now so one of my particular things is shame Okay, so I grew up in Roman Catholic Ireland in the 1970s, and shame was used as a means of mass crowd control. Yep. We were shamed from the pulpit every Sunday in church. You know, a lot of the messaging on TV was around shaming language. As children, we were told to think before we speak because of the impact that we have on people. You know, uh, children should be seen and not heard. You know, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't be too boisterous. You know, all of these sorts of things. shaming language. Now we take that on as children. As children, we're born incredibly intuitive because we don't have the experience and the adult capacity to be able to uh, reason logically. So we work intuitively as children. And I can, a lot of psychologists will tell you that a five-year-old probably knows more about psychology than every textbook ever written. <laughs> because they're intuitive yeah. and they're listening phenomenologically and they're taking things on board and they're constantly making decisions. Oh, this person reacted like that when I did that. It was good or bad. I will either do that again or I won't do that again. Decisions are being made. Survival conclusions, they are often referred to in psychoanalysis. 
And so these things will roll up into a whole load of limiting beliefs so that by the time we get to adulthood, by the time we've endured formal education, which wraps us up in a whole load of more labels and limiting beliefs and says, if you don't achieve a star in maths, English and, and science, you're a failure. You know, you're never going to go to university um, if you're good at art. You'll never be an artist. You'll never make money at that. That's crazy. Don't do that. You know, learn maths. Um, and I, I'm speaking to somebody who loves maths, by the way. So I'm not getting down and heavy on maths, people. But, <laughs> I, I, you know, you, you, you get you get the idea. Oh, yeah. And so by the time we get to our, you know, young adulthood, we've got all of these things that are now wrapped up in our identity, our values and beliefs. So the psychological level elements of our very being. When somebody assumes a leadership position, if there are elements of the behaviors that are required to be a leader that are in any way incongruent with any of those identities, values, and beliefs, you get what we call an impasse or a stuckness. So we get, I get a lot of private coaching clients who come to me with a stuckness. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this thing and I, 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 just, I, can't, I just can't seem to make it stick. So we spend a little time understanding, right, okay, so what behaviors are going on for you that's making it difficult to achieve that goal, okay? Once we identify the behaviors, we start looking at, okay, what might the values and beliefs and the identity elements of your being be that are driving those behaviors, okay? So we start to identify those and then we start to examine and we say, okay, so this belief here that you've got, is this something that really is working for you in the here and now? And I, I want to give you a practical example, if I may, Benjamin. Please. So I'm 48 years of age. I'm training as a psychologist. I've worked in, in management and leadership positions for 30 years, just over 30 years now, actually. I just realized to my, to my disgust, God, I'm getting old. Um, so I have a real problem with taking time for myself during the day. I can go an eight hour day and not even give myself a toilet break. Now you might say, oh my God, that's clearly bad for you, Ray. You know, come on, you're a grown up. You, you, you know all this stuff. Like, why, why is that happening? So here's what some of it's about. When I was a young kid, my dad was a builder. Okay, he built houses. And I used to go to work with him sometimes. I'm talking seven or eight years of age. Love going. If I could skip off school to go working with him, I absolutely. I'm there all day long. And I remember him saying to me on, on a few different occasions, you know, when the people come around that we're working for, you should never be standing around with your hands in your pockets. Okay. Yeah. Now, that and other similar messages over the years gave me, embedded in me, a, 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 an identity and a, and a belief and a value identity around my worth as an individual. So when I'm working for somebody, I need to be working, right? And I can't take any time for myself and I can't be seen for a second to not be working. Now, on the light side of this coin, that's given me a fantastic work ethic in, in terms of I work hard, I can really focus, and when I need to get stuff done, I can really get it done. The dark side of that coin, the flip side of it is, I don't take time for myself. And in some cases, actually, I might be disadvantaging the level of service I'm able to provide to people because I'm not attending to my own needs. Okay? Yes. That's what I mean about values and beliefs. So that value and belief of like, I can't take a break from work because if, you know, if in that 10 seconds that I, I go for a toilet break, somebody tries to contact me and I'm not available, they're going to think I'm slacking. And, and there's a fear. I can even as I'm saying it to you, I can still feel that fear that's within me, that's wrapped around that whole thing. Now, we might need to work with people to really put that into context and say, you know, for, for the goodness of my own health, I need to work against this unconscious driver. The dark, I sometimes refer to them as the, the dark unconscious forces. Mm -hmm. But they're forces that have got us to where we are today. You know, we're, we're partly here because of these things. So we can't, you know, we can't discount them totally. They've served us well in most cases, hopefully. But I need to really examine that. And I have to put in place certain real mechanical things to help me with that. Because what I'm doing is I'm unlearning the old and I'm relearning the new. 
And that process of transition takes time and we need all the help and support we can get. I get that through a therapist, through various process groups, through other coaches and psychotherapist colleagues that I work with, you know, so I'm very, very lucky. I also use mechanical aids. I've got a reminder on my phone that bings me every two hours and says, Ray, get up, walk around, <laughs> take a couple of minutes. Um, so I accept that I need these things and we all, but I've only known that because I've done this little bit of intrapsychic examination to understand these little things about myself. And it's, it's empowering me to be a better version of myself and to be able to connect with other people and be a better version of the environment with them as well. So as we're wrapping up here today, just in case our listeners haven't connected the dots throughout our entire conversation, really one of the biggest the biggest takeaways, one of the, the, the practical pieces of advice, wisdom, one of the tactical things that they can actually put in their toolkit as a leader is this, this concept of self-understanding, self-evaluation, really being something to, to catapult their empowerment as a leader is, yes. hey, as a leader, you have to take the time to understand yourself. You have to take the time to use whatever tools, whatever resources, therapist, whoever, or whatever you need. Podcasts. Yeah. Podcasts. Yeah. Exactly. Like the one we're on right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to to provide perspective and to provide a, a mechanism for you to have a deeper and more candid, true understanding of who you authentically are as a leader so that you can then bring that authenticity empowerment to your teams. Yes, yes. Because leadership is entirely psychological. We all communicate on two levels, Benjamin, social and the psychological. That's why sometimes when we talk to people, we hear what they're saying, but that what we're feeling is something entirely different. And so what we need to do as leaders is we need to be able to connect with people and communicate with people congruently. And in order to be able to get the social and the psychological congruent, we need to understand who we are in terms of our values, our beliefs, and our identity. Once we know that, there is nothing that we cannot achieve in terms of connecting with, communicating with, and inspiring the people around us and supporting them to learn a little bit about themselves every day as well. Ray, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your wisdom, and your insights with us. For our listeners who love what you've had to say or are intrigued to find out more about you and what you do, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, I'm not a great social media person. I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to that. So I don't I don't have great insights on LinkedIn and, and Instagram and stuff. The easiest way for people to contact me is via our website, which is www.campionconsultants.uk. And from there, they'll be able to email me directly and there's some helpful resources. And we've got links to our own podcast that we do, Leaders and Managers Hub, the podcast on there as well. And I, listen, I, I love to have conversations with people. So reach out to me. I will respond um, and, and you know, we'll see what comes from it. And people who want to collaborate with us as well or work with us, more than welcome to make contact. And I just want to add, we're, we're doing a little project, uh, Benjamin, with a, a podcast colleague up in, in Canada. Um, and we're looking at the evolution of leadership and we're going to produce it as a podcast series. But we're also thinking about that it may end up as a book and it will be talking about the 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 ev I can't even say it now, the evolution of leadership from our earliest sort of homo sapien existence through to the modern day. And we're doing it as an anthropological study to say what's changed? Has anything changed In, from a psychological maturity level are we still a noisy ape you know swinging through the trees but we're just walking around in suits and with briefcases now and trying to do this leadership thing and 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 is the leadership that we're embodying today congruent with who we are on a very limbic level so That'll be coming out later this year. We'll have all sorts of interesting conversations with evolutionary anthropologists and primatologists and leaders and all sorts of things. So hopefully that people will find that interesting too. That sounds fascinating. I'll uh, definitely have to keep an eye out for that. And for our listeners, uh, be sure you check out the full show notes for this episode, uh, links to be able to contact Ray and links to the other resources that were mentioned in this podcast episode will be there. Feel free to grab that. 
Ray, thank you so much for having time out of your schedule to come hang out with us and to share the stuff that you did. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for your perspective on leadership. Absolute honor, Benjamin. Thank you very much. In this fast-paced world, information is coming at us from all directions, telling us who we should be and what we should do. However, without knowing who you are at your core, it's challenging to filter out the noise and make informed decisions. Leaders often jump from initiative to initiative, trying to find what works best without understanding themselves. But by discovering your core identity, you can reject any leadership styles, approaches, or initiatives that don't align with who you are. To become a successful leader, you have to become a student of yourself. Understand how you respond to different situations, how your feelings impact your perspective, and how your default patterns influence your life and leadership. By bringing awareness to your emotions and being introspective, you can better lead your team. Effective leadership means embracing every opportunity to engage with others, whether ideal or sometimes messy, and learning more about them and yourself. We need to move away from the Industrial Revolution style of command and control leadership and more into the modern agricultural style of leadership. If you create the right environment for people, the growth and development will happen organically as a result of them being in the right kind of environment. An important part of every environment, every ecosystem is diversity. It's what allows for the formation of supportive, symbiotic relationships amongst organisms. This metaphor obviously extends into the workplace as well. Without diversity in a company, there is lack of perspective and a lack of depth to the understanding that the team as a whole can approach the market with. Change within an organization requires more than just telling people what they're doing wrong. You have to demonstrate and model what is right. To lead change within an organization, you must recognize the three different leadership positions in every organization. Responsible leaders, effective leaders, and psychological leaders. This is especially important if the change you're bringing to a company is the implementation of, or the evolution of, a professional development program or a leadership training program. The responsible leader is the person on the organizational chart that holds a formal position of authority due to their title and role in the company. The effective leader is the person whose orders or guidance actually gets followed by the people in the organization. They're the person telling people what to do. But the psychological leader is the person who is looking out for the strategic aims of the team and is often the person on the team that everyone truly follows, regardless of whether or not they're the official team leader. This person doesn't issue orders and get obeyed. They simply lead and people follow them. So this is the person that you need buy-in from to successfully lead change in the company. So ultimately, leaders need to remember three key things. First, Everyone has intrinsic value because of their humanity. This isn't an endorsement of their behavior, but it's rather recognition that they are valuable because they are human. Second, everyone has the capacity for rational thought. Obviously, there's some people with brain injuries and diminished mental capacities for a variety of reasons, but in general, the people you are leading in your organization are capable of critical reasoning and intelligent thought. So don't talk down to them like they're stupid. Third, everyone is capable of change. Whether they choose to or not is a different story, but everybody can change. So take the time to know yourself as a leader, embrace every opportunity to learn more about yourself and the people around you, and foster a diverse environment that allows growth and development. Remember, effective leadership is not about being perfect. It's about being authentic and true to yourself. In companies, toxic environments are where the humanity of the people in the company is ignored and removed supposedly for the greater good of the organization. As a leader, you have a responsibility to your team members to protect their humanity because that is what gives them their intrinsic value as people. So what do you do? Start having open conversations with your team and coworkers and ask them to identify any areas where they feel like they're being devalued. Get curious about what led to this status quo in your company and get feedback from your team and the people around you about what they believe would be rational solutions to create a diverse, supportive environment instead. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. If you resonate with this podcast, be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes we're going to be putting out. Also, I would personally appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review this podcast so that other people who would enjoy this content can find it more easily. Also, if you know someone who would like this episode, be sure and share it with them and encourage them to come check out what we're doing over here. You can use the link in the episode description to connect with me on social media. And if you haven't already, go grab a copy of my newest best-selling book, The Antidote. It will absolutely transform the way you think about leadership and developing teams. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves exceptional leadership and you can be that leader. Mm-hmm.